Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, Eastern family. Thanks for tuning us in. From 1927 until Eastern's last flight in 1991, the men and women have lived the history of our great airline. We are presenting these memories and stories with our radio show, Memories of a Great Airline, Eastern, as told by its people. We can't even imagine how, in the early days, the pilots flew open cockpit mail planes in all types of weather with very little or no navigational equipment except light beacons, landmarks, and other visual cues to reach their destinations. Many of the early pioneers even lost their lives to get the mail through. Some were even heroes to people along the mail route from New York to Miami by spotting fires of homes and businesses, then turning their mail planes to the affected property, circling and alerting those on the ground about the impending danger. This was a type of concern Eastern people displayed over the years. We read a story of June a couple of episodes ago, and the same concern led June Hatton to pay for an airline ticket for a soldier returning home to be with his family. He could not afford the cost, so she paid for the flight. It's typical of the Eastern employee. I remember receiving medical help when I first was hired by Eastern and still on probation at six months with the company. Eastern paid all of my wife's hospital bills when she had a stroke and gave me the time off that I needed. This was the company we worked for, ladies and gentlemen. I'm more convinced than ever, looking back at those wonderful years we had with Eastern, that the legend will live on long after we are gone. With the memories we share every Monday evening and stories yet to be written, Eastern will not be forgotten even by our descendants. If you have a story to tell, we want to hear from you. So stick around to the end of this broadcast, and we'll tell you how to go about getting it on the air. Now, Linda and Harry, let's tell the story of Eastern as told by its people. This is part three of the story titled, Compass and the Clock, written by Captain Bill Malone back in 1996 for the best of repartee. Fate pointed its fickle 
finger at Chuck White, who managed to land his Lockheed Constellation safely on the side of a hill in North Salem, Connecticut, after encountering a mid-air collision. Fifty of his passengers survived, but when Chuck went back into the smoldering fuselage to try to free a soldier who was trapped, gasoline that had been leaking from the wreckage exploded, killing both Chuck White and the soldier he was trying to rescue. Fate dealt a low blow to Curtis Fitz and Martin Calloway as they took off from Boston in their Lockheed Electra. They encountered a huge flock of birds that were ingested into the engines. It is thought that the propellers of the two engines on the same side of the airplane went into flat pitch, and the engines on the other side surged, causing them to lose control and crash in the bay. Miraculously, the two stewardesses in the rear of the passenger cabin, along with many of the passengers, escaped. Curtis Fitz and Martin Calloway were not so lucky. Fate continued her game as Steve Parkinson came out of a thunderstorm between Washington and Baltimore in the DC-8 inverted. When asked how he knew they were upside down, he replied, through the eyebrow windows, we could see the cars driving down the freeway. Together, he and his co-pilot were able to right the airplane. Mel French was well aware of the danger of picking up too much speed in the DC-8. He had often said that the airplane was so clean and streamlined that this could pose a problem. While he was absent from the cockpit using the restroom, they encountered turbulence. The DC-8 entered a vertical dive. Mel French climbed back into the cockpit hand over hand and reversed all four engines. Two of the engines were carried away, but the aircraft slowed to the point they were able to pull out of the dive. Their encounter and a later incident over Lake Pontchartrain in New Orleans caused a whole new technique of flying in turbulence to be adopted industry-wide. Mill checked into the hospital so he could not be questioned until he was prepared to answer the FAA's question. You could say that fate smiled on Tom Mayberry the day he was hijacked to Cuba in his DC-9. Tom was so low on fuel, he literally landed on the fumes in the tanks. From then on, Tom said, fill her up. The only time you have too much fuel is when you're on fire. Lee Hines was less fortunate when the hijackers of his airplane shot and killed the Eastern Airlines agent in Houston, Texas. And Lee had to continue the flight under such duress. The pilots of the Boeing 767 over Canada, who were completely out of fuel, were on their prolonged glide from 41,000 feet. In the book Freefall by William Hoffer and Martin Mona Hoffer, they described in vivid detail what happened. The 767 utilized a computer known as a fuel quantity processor, which relayed information to the fuel gauges in the cockpit. There had been a previous failure of the fuel quantity processor. The gauge for the right tank was blank, 
but the reading on the left gauge was six point something. What the crew thought to be left tank fuel gauge was merely indicating as a thermometer measuring the temperature of the fuel in the tanks and reported in on the Celsius scale. However, on a separate video monitors, the flight management computer had taken over for the blank fuel gauge, giving a concise summary of the fuel load. For the want of a nail, the shoe is lost. For the want of a shoe, the horse is lost. For the want, want of a horse, the rider is lost. Unbeknown to the pilots, there existed an improper connection in the pro microprocessor's cold-soldered joint, causing a partial improper connection that was the first link in this bizarre set of events. Had the joint been severed, then no current would have passed across the channel in the fuel quantity processor, and the channel would have been deactivated. Then the fuel quantity processor would have operated efficiently, efficiently on the other channel. In this case, the partial connection allowed a partial voltage to flow through, and this was just enough to default the system. Fueling was performed using the dips the drip sticks measuring the level of fuel in the tanks. The flight was dispatched requiring 22,300 kilograms of fuel. This particular aircraft specification consisted of a mix of metric and imperial numbers. Fuel quantity was calculated in kilograms. Thrust was designated in pounds. Even the mechanics had to have two sets of tools one metric and one imperial, to service the aircraft. The Canadian government had brought pressure to bear to go to the metric system of measurement. In Toronto, a butcher was prosecuted for selling his meat by the pound instead of by the kilogram. Instead of relying on the fuel gauges in the airplane, which were inoperative, the fueler had to use the gauges on his truck. Which, which measurements were in liters, not kilograms. The fueler had to pump a specific volume of fuel to reach the desired weight. There was fuel remaining in the tanks from the previous flight. Weight of kerosene varies with temperature. The whole process became a Chinese fire drill. With the switch from three cockpit crew members to two, Fuel calculations became the responsibility of maintenance, but maintenance had not been trained in these calculations. The wrong conversion factor was used, and the aircraft departed with insufficient fuel. The aircraft was now at 41,000 feet in its power off glide. Passengers had been briefed for an emergency landing. As it descended through 22,000 feet, air traffic control transmitted that they had lost contact with the ship's transponder. The flight crew, in response, describing the nature of the emergency and further stating that flight was being made on emergency instruments, made a mayday call. The flight crew was down to the compass and the clock. 
The air traffic controller was also in the same situation, for he was having to utilize the old primary radar to track the flights of the ill-fated airplane. A decision to attempt a dead stick landing on the abandoned Royal Canadian Air Force field was made. Using a makeshift cardboard ruler, the controller kept the flight crew apprised of their distance from the abandoned runway. The absence of fuel offset the drag of the windmilling engines, so the descent profile used by all pilots in the jet remained virtually the same. Attention was directed to conforming to this profile. An emergency call was made from Air Traffic Control Center to the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, as was a request for all available police and fire equipment. Then, with a final sweep on the radar screen, the aircraft descended below the reception level, and the blip disappeared. Unknown to both the pilots and controllers, the Winnipeg Sports Car Club was having a race at the Royal Canadian Air Force field, and their final straightaway was right down the runway the crew of the Boeing 767 had planned on using for their landing. Many spectators were present. All sorts of activities were taking place, including a vehicular scavenger hunt, a festive atmosphere prevailed. Tents were pitched and campers were parked alongside the runway. Barbecues for cooking on grills. A Cessna 152 was overheard, was overhead. On the final segment of their approach, the aircraft appeared to the flight crew to be high. So the landing gear was lowered using the alternate landing gear extension pump operating off direct current supplied by the battery. The landing gear doors opened and the main gear dropped. The nose gear remained in the up position. Landing flaps and slats were unavailable as the auxiliary power unit could not be started. The pilot initiated a side slip to lose altitude. One can imagine what the reaction would be of those observing from the ground a huge jet airliner approaching a, at a weird angle with no sound. As the aircraft touched down and the nose slid along the runway in a shower of sparks, everyone rushed to get out of the way. The aircraft plowed through the post of a low metal guardrail erected along the center of the runway and slid to a stop. In moments of great stress, bizarre events often occur. As the passengers began their emergency evacuation, the co-pilot reached up and deactivated the fuel control switches to prevent fire. There was no fuel left in the tanks to burn. The captain set the parking brake, which was also unnecessary. Both pilots reached up and pulled the fire control switches. Then they switched off the battery. Thus, the end came to an experience that began only minutes before, at an altitude of 41,000 feet, in which the pilots found themselves down to the compass and the clock. Advertising. Radio, newspapers, billboards, 
television commercials. At Eastern, we use them all. In marketing our product over the years, the techniques have changed, but a common thread that you'll find in all of our ads is the message that we are a service-oriented company and that it is you, the employees of Eastern, who set us apart from every other carrier. We Earn Our Wings Every Day is our latest message, and these commercials feature you in vignettes that show you and your fellow employees providing the warm, personal, friendly service that only Eastern can deliver. You are now going to see a series of commercials that span two decades. In them, you will see the emphasis shift from the award-winning institutional approach of the Wings of Man era to the destination-oriented commercials designed to attract the vacation traveler. More recently, we promoted our standing for more than four years as America's favorite way to fly. But regardless of the theme, all of these commercials promise the current and potential customer that flying with Eastern will be a pleasant, rewarding experience. An airplane doesn't make this happen, nor does a computer, a ticket printer, or a fine meal. They contribute, but only you make it happen. It takes people to make an airline go. Good people. These are the people of Eastern. A captain bringing you home on time. A stewardess caring for your smallest needs. A weatherman guiding your pilot to an easier route. A craftsman working to microscopic tolerances. Have a nice flight. May I help you? People. Eastern people. When you buy a ticket on Eastern, you deserve a queen queen. We're going to do more than just get you there. We're going to take good care of you all the way. How do we take care of 300 people every day, one at a time? We work hard to get these beauties out on time so you get in on time. you got to believe. If you want a window seat, I'll do my best to get you one. you got to believe. you got to believe. Take a second now, look up in the sky, can't you see the blue That the Eastern plane flying through the sky, shouldn't that be you there? Suddenly you stop and you're wondering why, you're down there and they're up in the sky. Oh, 
fact, Eastern Airlines be your wings. With over 1,300 flights a day to more than 100 cities, the people of Eastern have the right time and the right place for you. So up and fly away, so easy. feel that way, and you feel that way, 
There must be millions of other people who feel that way. And all those people are making their own noises to tell the world about their feelings. The bearded face of the young computer expert, the businessman who wears bright red pants on the golf course, the house painted vivid yellow on a street that was once all gray. The consumer who registers her dissatisfaction with the product by picketing the company that makes it. 200 million people quietly screaming out to be recognized and treated as human beings. Not statistics. Recognizing an immense need and an equally immense opportunity. Eastern management has made a commitment to meet both. Person to person. One reflection of that commitment is the advertising. The airline's communication to the public. That Eastern does indeed honor them as individuals and will treat them accordingly. Now the first step in that communication is recognizing who they are. Yes. Well, they're the hardcore of frequently flying businessmen who were constantly sampling our product on the business side. They want to know that an airline goes where they want to go, when they want to go. Yet on the man side, they also want to know that they'll be treated warmly and humanly. But more and more today, our public is also the man at a meeting in Puerto Rico getting to know the people he works with a little better so that his work can be more effective and more pleasant. And their parents watching their children grow and learn and appreciate their heritage and seeing travel as a way to make that happen. And their people from different places Bridging the chasm of time, space, and culture through flight. There are people from all over the country renewing themselves by returning to the old values of love and the family. There are people going away and finding out how important what they left behind is. No, no, it wasn't that. It's not that, you know. It's just that I have to get home to you. I'm not used to being away with, without you. Yeah, I love you. I love you more than I miss you. Yeah, and I miss you a lot. And there are people coming home. There are people with appointments all over the country and commitments to thousands of people. They are people of every conceivable creed, color, and hairstyle. The commercials you're about to see were prepared to let them and all their fellow human beings know that Eastern Airlines knows them as people, understands them as people. And already flies more of them as people. From the pictures that demonstrate our sensitivity to human needs to the words which spell out our commitment to meet those needs individually, our advertising abides by the simple principle that if you show people that they are important to you, 
You'll be important to them. There's a link between man and bird, as between two dreams. The dream of flight and the dream of freedom. about Eastern's first passenger accident, well, you're about to hear the story. And uh, it was Eastern Air Transport back in the day, and this was in 1930. The story was written by Frank Gerdone, who was uh, a pilot for Pitcairn Aviation, and then Eastern Air Transport. The story goes... Frank Gerdone was hired August 1930 by Mr. Harold B. Elliott, Vice President of Operations. The second pilot hired was first, uh, he was the second pilot hired, I should say. The first was H.E. Pete Parker. They called uh, Frank uh, one day and, and he was hired the next day in his office. 
The fleet back then was two Ford Trimotors and two Curtis Condors with 600 horsepower Curtis Conqueror engines. Pete and Frank flew the first inaugural flight, then alternating flights each as pilots on the New York-Richmond run. The first two co-pilots with Eastern were John Armstrong and Dell Hendrickson. Now, for the Philadelphia stop, they used Camden Field across from the river from downtown Philadelphia. For Washington, they used Hoover Field, located across the Potomac River in Virginia, near where the Pentagon is today. Elliot called Frank one day on his day off and told him to pack his bag for a long stay as he was about to fly Elliot and others to Atlanta. Frank says, I got to the airport and saw that the airplane was a little Curtis Kingbird, a high-wing plane carrying eight passengers. Frank was to do the flying, which he had never flown a Kingbird before. And on December 7th, Elliot called Frank into his office and said that he and Pete would fly the two Condors on the inaugural flight of New York to Atlanta along with two Fords and two Falkers, all going down together. When Frank boarded the Condor for his flight, he spotted Doug Davis, who was not an EAT, Eastern Air Transport pilot, at that time, but a famous race pilot. He invited Doug to occupy the co-pilot seat, as you only had to have soloed to be a co-pilot. Frank was to land after overnighting in Washington for a banquet for the Postmaster General at Spartanburg and pick up a newspaperman for the final run into Atlanta. While in flight to Atlanta, the newspaperman came up to the cockpit and told him he wanted someone to come back and look out the window. Frank turned the Condor over to Davis and went back to look and found the right landing gear strut sheared off at the ball and socket joint, allowing the wheel to drop down and dangle under the belly of the plane. Completely useless and a potential menace to the airplane passengers and the crew. Frank thought that he had not known the situation and had landed in Atlanta if he had not known the situation and had landed in Atlanta, it would have probably resulted in a crash and possibly fire with the resultant of loss of life. He thought of the 18 people and most all of the celebrities, the senators and congressmen and their wives on the airplane. The fact he had only recently been checked out in the airplane and that he had to put together a plan soon as they were approaching Atlanta. Doug was from Atlanta and knew the best area on Candler Field to make such a landing. Up ahead was Stone Mountain and then Candler Field, as Frank outlined his plan to Doug Davis. I will make the approach to the field as slow a speed as possible and still retain lateral control, he said. I will attempt to make the landing on the one good wheel, coming in with the right wing high, I will have my right hand on the throttle and my left hand on the brake lever. And when the airplane started its inevitable ground loop, I will brake it with the left brake and at the same time shove the right throttle wide open, thus 
stopping the ground loop almost before it begins. Doug, the moment we hit the ground, no matter in what fashion, hold the control wheel all the way back to keep the tail down. Also, if we start to go over on our back, cut the master switch, which is right here, here close to your left leg. We're going to fly over the field to get a good look at where I want to put it down. I will fly close to the crowd I see gathering so that they might see our predicament. There is no way of alerting anyone of our emergency, so we'll just have to make the best of it. Okay, Doug, here we go with the approach. Are you clear as what we are to do? Just going to nod, are you? Okay. This probably doesn't bother you at all with all your racing experience. Over the fence, right wing high, touch the turf lightly. Now we roll until the tail starts down and the inevitable ground loop is coming. Brake hard and bring in the right throttle full out. We do a quarter turn in the ground loop and come to an abrupt stop. Looks like the passengers are getting out without even noticing what has happened. Doug and I just sit there and look at each other for a long moment, and then we get out. Aboard the flight was a young man by the name of Ernie Pyle, a correspondent for the Washington Post. He would later become the nation's finest war correspondent. He wrote a nice tribute to the incident and stated uh, that Jardon had done a magnificent job of an emergency landing. Only the trailing edge of the aileron was damaged and the bad wheel was forced up into the engine nacelle and damaged the various controls. But a new landing gear strut was flown down on the night mail plane and the very next day was scheduled to return with the same passengers back to New York. January 1931, I was promoted to chief pilot of the Southern, Southern Division, Atlanta to Miami. This was submitted by Captain Neil Holland. We thought you might enjoy these quotes by some Eastern people and friends. The first one, go ahead and top the tanks, but show me carrying 400 gallons. That was Captain Dick Merrill. And the note, that figure was below the DC-3's capacity, but it made the takeoff legal with a full complement of passengers. And Merrill was one of the few pilots who could get the usually hard-nosed dispatchers to go along with this chicanery. That's from Robert Serling's From the Captain to the Colonel. Another, quote, Damn it, Eddie, am I the only airline pilot around here? That was from Captain Dick Merrill again. Merrill flew virtually every Eastern inaugural trip that came along, and also special VIP flights, all on Rickenbacker's orders. Again, from the captain to the colonel. You look at Floyd and you think you're seeing a William Powell type of guy, very fastidious, nonchalant, and easygoing. But when you get to know him, 
He was more a John Wayne or even, on occasion, a Wallace Berry. He could talk about opera one minute and ream you out like a marine drill instructor the next. From Floyd Hall, a friend and admirer. Light rain outside, heavy rain inside. A DC-2 pilot, when asked what kind of weather conditions he was encountering, from, again, Robert Serling's from the captain to the colonel. Because you bastards are making enough dough to buy your own, beep, beep, Captain Eddie Rickenbacker. When asked by a pilot at a meeting why Eastern had no sturdices when the other airlines did, from captain to the colonel. I've been looking for you, you son of a bitch. You've been browbeating every person on this airline you've come in contact with, and by God, they don't deserve it. They're doing the best they can, and frankly, I don't care if you never ride this airline again. That was Captain Eddie Rickenbacker. Rickenbacker heard of one passenger who delighted in making life miserable for Eastern personnel and quite by coincidence, happened to sit next to him on a flight. The minute Rickenbacker heard the man give his name, the alarm bell and the captain opened fire. The passenger apologized from the captain to the colonel. If it wasn't on a spad, we can't have it, from Captain Eddie Rickenbacker. We can say air travel is reliable, but there's no such thing as absolute safety. The only time anyone is really safe is when he's completely static. If you move, there's always a possibility of an accident. From Captain Eddie. He told Brad Walker he never used the word safe in an Eastern advertisement. That's from the book Captain to the Colonel. I don't care what you cover the seats with as long as you cover them with assholes. From Captain Rickenbacker, the CEO of Eastern Airlines, to the designers proudly showing off the seat cover designs for the first turboprop airliner to be operated in the U.S., the Lockheed Electra. Air transport is just a glorified bus operation. There's always been a certain romanticism associated with the airline business. We must avoid its uh, perpetuation at Eastern at all cost. That was from Frank Borman. We were raped, Frank Borman, after capitulating to Charlie Bryant's wage demands. Well, now I'll demonstrate how you stop a Connie. You grab both hands around the goddamn yoke, you rear back in the seat, and you stomp the hell out of the goddamn brake pedals, and that's how you stop a Connie. But now, you take a goddamn DC-7, you take off your shoes, grab the wheel with your hands, and you touch the brakes with your toes, and that's how you stop a goddamn DC-7. <laughs> the fiery words from Captain Eddie Rickenbacker. Young man, the day I stop fighting with you or anyone else in this company 
it's because I've decided you're no damn good and you might as well get the hell out. That was from Captain Eddie Rickenbacker in an elevator with Bob Wynn, reservation specialist. When Wynn asked, Captain, what are we doing wrong? We seem to be bickering and fighting all the time. That was from Robert Serling's, from the captain to the colonel. Got any dirty pictures of her? Referring to another pilot's wife. That was from Captain Art St. John, when told by a pilot that he, the pilot, had just gotten married. The pilot said, of course not. To which Art replied, want to buy some? From Robert Serling's book. Captain to the Colonel. Mr. Baker, maybe we can't run an airline, but we sure can sure as hell keep one from running. That was a comment to George T. Baker from Captain W.T. Slim Babbitt. In a conference with the President of National Airlines, George T. Baker, during a pilot contract negotiations. Mr. Baker pointed his finger at Slim and said, You two bastards, that was referring to Slim and Jerry Woods, have never run an airline and you wouldn't be able to if you had the chance. With that, Slim Babbitt said, Mr. Baker, maybe we can't run an airline, but we can sure as hell keep one from running. From Robert Serling's Captain to the Colonel. I'd like to thank all you folks for flying Eastern, and that includes Mr. Maytag, who, as you know, is president of National Airlines and always flies with us if he wants to get to Miami on time. <laughs> From Captain W.T. Slim Babbitt. Howdy, folks. This is your captain, old Slim. In a few minutes, those little girls back there are going to start rattling those pots and pans and whip up some vittles for you. You folks just relax, take off your shoes, and lean back with old Slim here. Uh, takes you all flying. That was from Robert Serling's, from the captain to the colonel. Top the tanks and give me the green stamps. That was Captain Tom Mayberry when asked how much fuel he needed on the outbound leg. Captain Neil Holland referred that from his book, Wings of Many. Note, this was a usual reply from Uncle Tom, as most of us referred to Captain Tom Mayberry after being talked out of taking more fuel than he wanted and nearly running out of fuel when he was hijacked to Cuba. I see quite often on the Eastern Airlines Facebook page, people ask questions, what if Eastern had merged with Pan Am? What if Eastern had merged with Braniff? What if Eastern had merged with American? Well, there are lots of what if questions that we'll never know the answer to, but we have a story here from the book The Wings of Man by Peter Pappas. Uh, it's called Two Possible Pan Am Eastern Mergers, Trying to Save Eastern and Pan Am. I started working at Eastern Airlines at 10 Rockefeller Plaza, New York City. What a prestigious address. I had just completed three years in the military 
and was looking forward to an exciting career in aviation. Then, Eastern was close to bankruptcy because of its failure to transition to jet aircraft like its primary competitor, Delta Airlines. Both Eastern and Delta operated major hubs in Atlanta. Eastern had its famous air shuttle operation with no reservation required and a guaranteed seat for anyone who showed up. Occasionally, Eastern would even roll out a backup Electra for a single passenger. Eastern was primarily a north-south airline with major market positions from the northeast of Florida and the Caribbean. The CEO at the time was Floyd Hall, a former TWA pilot who looked like Clark Gable. My initial position was a specialized specialist in airline planning, focusing on route and fleet planning. I remember how exciting it was to help develop Eastern CAB presentation to secure route authority in the Trans-Pacific route case. Eastern proposed flying from the East Coast to Hawaii and beyond, but was never awarded that authority. In 1970, I was elevated to manager of operating plans, working for West Cadal, one of the industry's premier strategic planners and schedulers. We struck up a positive relationship that lasted about 25 years at Eastern, Pan Am, and American. He was a tough, demanding mentor who understood the core essentials of scheduling for profitability. I learned a lot about Eastern and his mentorship. EAL moved its headquarters from New York to Miami in 1970, which looked to me like a power play by COO San Higginbottom to wrest control of the company from Floyd Hall. I had no desire to relocate to Miami and stayed with Eastern in New York until 1973 when I joined Pan Am to work once again with Cadal, now that airline's head of route planning, who had left Eastern the year before. Ironically, at Pan Am, my first project as director of planning was to head up a task force to evaluate the potential of a Pan Am Eastern merger. My team actually relocated out of the Pan Am building to ensure the secrecy of this project. Without computers at that time, we undertook an excruciating analysis of CAB coupon data to determine the incremental traffic that would flow over the combined network of Pan Am and Eastern. During this project, we analyzed the traffic and revenue potential of the merger for months in both New York and Miami. In Miami, we worked out of the Sinesta Beach Hotel in Key Biscayne. What a great assignment that turned out to be. After presenting our findings to Bill Seawall, then CEO of Pan Am, it was time to present to a joint Pan Am Eastern Executive Group in Miami. At that session, I was introduced to the newly appointed COO of Eastern, the former astronaut Colonel Frank Borman. I remember how impressed I was with the thought of meeting the man who had circled the moon. However, at the meeting, that impression changed quickly as he lacked the leadership characteristics I expected and demonstrated a complete lack of knowledge about airline operations. Hopefully, I thought, he would not have a role in the merged PAA-EAL entity. I couldn't help but think later that Eastern would have been better off if Borman had continued to circle the moon instead of leading Eastern to bankruptcy and ruination. The merger never took place, of course. Pan Am's board wanted validation of the benefits of our internal study and hired McKinsey and Company to review our extensive analysis. McKinsey spent a few weeks analyzing our six-month study with its murder recommendations. The conclusion presented to the PAA board was, merging Pan Am with Eastern would be like two drunks in the night trying to hold each other up. 
Based on McKenzie's recommendation, we then moved on to study a merger with American Airlines, which of course also never happened. Caldwell's assessment of Pan Am's strength and weaknesses called for a fleet plan to replace aging Boeing 707s and to capitalize on new technology aircraft becoming available, such as the Trijet McDonnell Douglas DC-10 and the Lockheed L-1011 TriStar. Pan Am needed a type to complement the Boeing 747, which unfortunately was too big for a business-oriented schedule and was then plagued by poor performance of its Pratt & Whitney JT-9D engines. An Eastern merger would have pro provided Pan Am with L-1011 aircraft that Eastern and TMDA had ordered in 1970. Both Eastern and Pan Am struggled with the advent of deregulation in 1978. Eastern filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection in March of 1989. At that time, I was an independent airline consultant, having left American in 1987. I subsequently returned to American in 1992 after a brief stint at Pan Am, which once again involved Eastern Airlines. In February 1989, I received a call from Tom Plaskett, Chairman and CEO of Pan American World Airways in New York. Tom knew that I had extensive knowledge about Eastern and wanted me to evaluate the potential of Pan Am acquiring Eastern assets. Pan Am was struggling to survive after the Lockerbie disaster of December the 21st, 1988. Unfortunately, the only attractive Eastern asset from Pan Am's perspective was the South and Central American network. However, given Pan Am's extensive route map in the same area, there was little chance of Department of Justice approval for an acquisition by Pan Am. Those magnificent routes went to American for a mere $370 million in 1990. Retrospectively, there were lots of extremely talented and dedicated people who worked at Eastern. But as was the case at so many airlines, executive management and most boards were not up to the task of meeting the challenges of deregulation and the change it brought. I cannot help think some 40 years later that the merger of Pan Am and Eastern, as proposed in 1973 under the provisions and sanctions of the bankruptcy process, would have created one hell of an airline network for the future. Perhaps Eastern and Pan Am would still, in some form, be with us today. What do airplane pilots mean when they use the term grease jobs? Well, it means they've made a really smooth landing. Most of us have been on planes many times, and most of the time the landing is pretty smooth. Once in a while, you'll have a hard landing. I was on such a flight many years ago, coming in Chicago. It was uh, on Southwest Airlines. We hit, and we hit pretty hard. Uh, in just a minute, the flight attendant came on the PA and said, you might say we just hit Chicago. Everybody got a good laugh of that. But Grease Jobs was a story told in The Wings of Many by Tom Bartley. Every pilot knows that the formula for a paint job landing includes an element of luck. In fact, I think this is true of just about any landing to a greater or lesser degree. Some days you could not make a bad one if you tried. Other days you can't hit the ground with your hat. But once in a while a miracle will happen and you can't even feel it when the wheels touch the runway. That kind of a miracle happened to me once and only once in the DC-3. It was the most incredible landing I ever made. I still can't explain it. In the big airplanes, of course, it does happen occasionally. 
there's a lot of distance and a lot of weight between the pilot and the wheels. But a DC-3? Never. Yet here's what happened. I was flying co-pilot with the late A.B. Duke in the spring of 1940, landing at Nashville one night, en route from Atlanta to Chicago. Trying for a three-pointer with half flaps, I made a normal approach, flared, held it off, waited for it to touch, and waited, and waited. Finally, I realized we weren't flying. We were rolling. I never felt it touch. Neither did Duke. We were both completely dumbfounded. No, it wasn't on a wet runway. I have no idea how it happened. But I know the old horseshoe was really working. In later years, in the big airplanes, I used to pretend, with tongue-in-cheek, that I could call my shots on these accidental grease jobs. Now, you see how it's done, young man? I don't want to have to show you again. Of course, the automatic wisecracks, which immediately follow that kind of a landing, are an essential part of the ritual. I hate these show-off guys. Don't look now, but I think we're on the ground. What was the own time? Well, it was a little hard to tell. Not a bad landing captain. Did you let it get away from you? Bill Nelson had the copyright on that one. Sometimes when a co-pilot that I knew real well came up with a super smoothie, I would say, go in the back and tell him the captain made that one. Bill Westhafer nailed me on that one day. He painted one on like paper on a wall. Then he's, as we walked back through the cabin, he said, nice and loud, you're really in the groove today. Actually, West Taylor didn't have to say anything to make the captain look good. All he had to do was fly the airplane. But of course, luck runs both ways. The good and the bad balance out and you break even, supposedly. Actually, I think I came out ahead of the game on that in the long run. I remember a certain trip from New York in a DC-8 where neither the first officer nor I made a decent landing on the entire flight, and it was a trip with five or six stops. Finally on arrival back at JFK, I was determined to end up with a good one, but I didn't. Crash, bang, and we were on the ground. The second offer, Gene Smith, had sat there at the engineer's panel and suffered through the whole string of cruddy landings. Gene had a very dry wit and was an excellent pilot himself, which made him fully eligible to put the needle in both of us for the bad landings. As we taxied to the ramp, he come up with a wry observation. I know I'm supposed to take care of the panel, sitting back here, but I just have to compliment you guys. You sure do make good takeoffs. Touché. I think very few professional pilots really get too upset over an occasional bad landing. Of course, nobody likes to make a bad one, but you can't go back and do it over again, and it's no good to be a prima donna about it, so that's that. Still, it can be embarrassing, especially if you become impatient with a co-pilot and take over on final with an exas exasperated comment such as, Damn it, let me show you how to put one of these down in a crosswind, and then mess it up, which is exactly what I did one afternoon at Newark on the old number 508 in a Super C L1049 Constellation. That, that may have been the best crosswind airplane we had. I showed the young man, all right, how not to make a crosswind landing. I wish I could charge that one off to luck. Some days, you can't make a dime. Memories of a great airline have reached the end of our broadcast tonight. We hope you enjoyed the stories as told by the Eastern family and read by Linda and Harry Lindquist and me, Neil Holland.
The stories will continue with next week's broadcast of Memories of a Great Airline, Eastern, as told by its people. If you have memories you would like presented on the air, we hope you will send them to us so they can be read and heard by the Eastern family. You can even record them on your computer's voice recorder and send them to us, and we'll include them on a future show. Send via email to enealholland at yahoo.com. That's E-Neal, N-E-A-L, Holland, H-O-L-L-A-N-D, at yahoo.com. It must be in an MP3 or a WAV file to work with our broadcast. These are the formats that most computers use. Also, we hope you will tell your friends about these broadcasts, and if you miss one, you can always go to blogtalkradio.com forward slash Captain Eddie, that's C-A-P-T-E-D-D-I-E, and select from the episode's archive. Our Eastern theme music tells us it's about time to say goodnight, Eastern family. From Linda, Harry, and me, we'll see you at the gate next week. Good night, Eastern family. <laughs>